Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Ian Rickson. I'm a theatre director. And welcome to my podcast, What I Love. In all the time I've worked in the theatre, I've been lucky to meet some extraordinary artists. In this series, I speak with some of them in the silence of an empty theatre stage and ask them about three things that they love, a song, a film and a piece of writing. I'm looking to discover why we especially cherish certain things and how we reveal ourselves through the things we love. In a much fabled actor's journey, it can be a marker of having made it when you cross over from the British stage to the American television screen. For London-born actor-writer Kush Jumbo, the connections between the UK and the US occur pretty frequently. An all-female production of Julius Caesar, for which she won an Olivier Award, transferred from London to New York. Kush's own play about ragtime icon Josephine Baker made the same move followed by a Broadway run of Jez Butterworth's play The River with Hugh Jackman. After all this, Cush landed a starring role in two long-running US TV series, the legal dramas The Good Wife and the spin-off The Good Fight. But, perhaps unusually, Cush announced earlier this year that she was leaving, returning with her young family to South London. Part of the drive to come back home for Cush was a planned appearance as Hamlet in a production at the Young Vic, scheduled for summer 2020, which was subsequently postponed due to the coronavirus. Cush and I met on that stage, upon which she was supposed to be performing back in August. This podcast yeah. allows me to really hold you in mind. Okay. Because if I think about what you love... I kind of become you because I see the world through your eyes and I start making a story through the things you love. So hopefully I'm not being nosy and asking you direct questions. Right. I'm more just allowing things you really cherish and hold dear to sit inside me, which is such a privilege. It's very interesting. Because when you ask me as well, there are hard questions because you have many things, right? It's like, how do I pin it down to three? But in the end, I just thought, I'm going to answer really fast. And I was looking back at it today and I thought, those are what I would choose for my lists. I think you've either got to be quick and instinctive, like when you go to the bowling alley in Lewisham. You do the first one, (laughs) then you start overthinking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then gradually through reflection and time, you start doing it well again. (laughs) Love how you just rolled that in. (laughs) Have I ever been? And I have my 10th birthday party at Lewisham Bowling Alley, so why don't you just chill your boots, okay? I know those lanes very well. I haven't been there in a while, but... If people notice our accents merging, <laughs> we both come from a very particular part of south-east London, but as my producer, Sarah, said, three of the four guests so far have come from south-east London. I wonder whether we should just change the whole thing and call it South East London Matters well, or something. I mean, 
it is always of massive interest to me, in general, that I think it has been slightly underplayed, the amount of actors that come from South London. Isn't that interesting? Like, why? And they're all so different. But there's something in the water. Yeah. When you cross the river. What do you think would generate so many interesting actors? I don't know. You look back at your own... Obviously, everyone has a different experience there, don't they? And they go to different schools and they have different families. There is something about the south of London which I think hasn't changed, which is almost in the land and the architecture. Yeah. My husband always calls it good stock, but it's like you can go to the most run-down parts of South London and the houses are beautiful. Mm. There's history there. Mm. And then you can go to places that are now beautiful that were once run down or run down places, vice versa. And then you have these huge parks and green spaces Mm. everywhere that are all about people who really thought about landscaping Mm. areas for the local community. Mm. I can't put my finger on it, but it's something to do with structure and space and also that we're a chatty people, right? I remember all my neighbours when I was growing up, all the different parts of South London that we moved. We moved a lot. And I think we're a... We're a chatty, communal, whether you go more east or you go more west in the south. I just think we are, southeast especially, for sure. We're a, we're a storytelling people. So I don't know, but does that roll into it? I don't know. The density of artists, musicians, actors yeah. who come from that small geographical area is amazing. It is a bit and, nuts. And in that world of... Lewisham came this technicolour, frenzied, joyful, exuberant first choice singing in the rain, <laughs> which I imagine you watched as a child. Yes. I don't know what the cultural diet was when you were <laughs> six or nine and what your dad put on the telly or what your mum was playing on the radio. But somewhere in there was singing in the rain. Yeah. What did it do to the young Kush? It was a household that was chaotic because I had millions of siblings, but very generous of spirit and very loud. Lots of different music. My mum was coming from Scunthorpe and my dad, you know, he's Nigerian, but he's a Rastafarian. So our house was baseline of reggae. Then my mum singing all kinds of songs from the 40s and 50s, from those weird, like, black and white talk shows people would do. And then in the middle, my sister and I, since we were very small, two or three years old, we had gone to a local in Catford dance school. And the teachers that ran that school had us learn numbers that were from MGM movies, pre-MGM even, vaudeville, we didn't know that at the time. We thought we were just learning numbers. And we would do our annual show at Lewisham, Lewisham Broadway. Yeah, the Broadway Theatre. The Broadway Theatre was my first stage. So I had an appetite for these songs and these rhythms and these lyrical jiggeries quite early on. And I was aware really early that certain channels, I mean, we only had four channels mm. at the time, and Channel 4 
always showed a lot of musical matinees. I knew what time of the week they were on. I knew when they were on. And a lot of the time I could be found there. And then Christmas, when the Radio Times was come out, the first thing I did, I was like five or six years old, go through the Radio Times. I couldn't read. So I was like looking for pictures of the old musicals, especially the Technicolours, especially ones that were about a show within a show. And I was obsessed with them. It's how I came across Josephine. It's I knew a lot of the uh, song and dance men and women really early. So... I can't remember the first time I come across Singing in the Rain, but I would know we performed Make Them Laugh, which is in the movie, um, as one of our dance shows. So I knew those lyrics. And then when that movie came round and the lyrics were in it, I kind of connected the two. And I just loved the movie straight away. So that was like an early relationship with it. And then as time went on and I got older and I watched more of those movies and more of those, you begin to really differentiate between what makes a real special old school musical and why you love it so much and I was a big fan of Gene Kelly I had a couple of his biographies and I was read about his maybe I'm like 11 or 12 by this point I go to Waterstones in Bromley which was by my school and I would trawl around the old Hollywood area and I remember saving my money to buy this big Gene Kelly biography and reading about the making of Singing in the Rain reading about his other movies and his choreography and what made him different to other song and dance men of the time and that people were like, you're too short, you're too stocky, you're too heavy, you know, it's never going to work, your choreography's weird and um, that he just persisted with being different and I found that quite inspiring and so I kept watch the film and watch the film and watch the film and for anyone that knows the film, they know that it is a story within a story within a story with all these other offshoots of stories but it's mainly about, you know, silent movies moving into talkies which is so my area and vaudeville especially, physical comedy, long numbers where you're having to kind of sing and dance and jump and do a pratfall and then another pratfall and another pratfall. I love that stuff and it's in me somewhere. I don't know why, I don't know where it's come from, but like Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly, I was like, I want to be like you. And then I think I moved into your teens and your 20s and then you get older and you have these emotional connections with these films. And for me, there's so much in Singing in the Rain (laughs) as you get into this business, which talks about what the business is, the ugly and beautiful sides of it. And you keep going back to that. So the movie's a comfort to me for many reasons. It reminds me of the sparkle it would put on the business for me when I was a kid that was making me think, I want to do this, I want to do this. And the business side of it. And then also I'm now able to sit back as an adult and go, fuck, to make a movie like that, the work, the technical ability, the work ethic, the rehearsal, some of these numbers are done in one take or, you know, maybe in a couple of days. They'll work for 18 hours until the musical number gets done and that's how I work. So I I get it and I don't know, I just have this like, I just love it. Yeah, I mean, if... A couple of decades before I was floating around the same places, I struggled to sort of get into reading, but I read biographies of the film stars. And my dad would tell me all the ephemera around the films, mm. like Donald O'Connor doing Make Him Laugh. He had to be hospitalised yep. because he was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day yes. to get through it and just collapsed. Yeah. Gene Kelly, you'll know, had a temperature of 105. Yeah. 
they filmed that constantly for 36 hours. Yeah. He'd lie outside the lot and his suit would have shrunk because yeah. of the amount of water, trying to get dry. I mean, health and safety just wouldn't allow it now. <laughs> I think about my good fight set and about the fact that they're like, change Kush out of her heels into slippers between scenes. She couldn't possibly stand. And you hear actors going, oh, it was a really hard day because I did this and I couldn't eat grilled cheese until four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not saying, oh, but it's just this kind of commitment to, it's got to get done. And also, I guess the risks were higher, right? Like, we have this amount of water for this scene and it's costing us $200,000. And if we don't get Singing in the Rain done with this tank of water, then we've got to get another tank of water and it's going to take us four weeks. We can't just kind of plug it in over there and put it in with CGI afterwards. Amazing. Amazing. Do you think that health and safety, risk-averse culture is generally a good thing? Because you talk about this moment, 1952, when they were giving so much and Gene Kelly, of course, was directing it as yeah. well and you've got Debbie Reynolds with her feet bleeding. I think that in our industry, theatre and on screen, each job is so individual that it requires that team of people to sit down and really think about... Because I've been on jobs where I have felt unsafe and haven't felt that I could speak and say, I feel uncomfortable, I feel unsafe, this is making me nervous because of the pressure. And then I've been on other jobs where I've thought, well, this is bloody ridiculous. Why can't we all just work for one more hour? If we all worked for one more hour, I could nail this scene. I can't get to this emotional place again tomorrow. So if we could just go two more takes, I could get it. But no, we all have to shut down Mm. because there are rules about blah and blah. And I just think it's unlike an office job, so... Of course, I wouldn't expect anyone's feet to be bleeding on a set I was on. And on the other hand, I know what I'm like. And I remember once being in a show, a musical, at a big London theatre, and I had an understudy for the first time. And she was used to doing a lot of musicals. And I remember her saying to me, listen, can you let me know when you're going to be off? Because I've got my family and stuff coming to town. And um, I want to know when you're going to be off, meaning if you're not an actor, like when you're going to pull a sickie so that I can go on. And I was so shocked and I turned to her and I said, if they call you and tell you that you're going on for me, assume I'm dead. Because that's just what I'm like. When you, you build, you spend all this time and energy and blood and love building a character, you never would hand that off to somebody else. And with a movie, of course, you can't have an understudy. So Gene Kelly got himself to that point, got himself prepared, learnt the number, got the shots, got the water, got the jacket, and he wakes up with this fever because he's probably exhausted. You go to work. And also maybe part of him thought, something about this fever is going to nail this performance. And that's sometimes how you can feel when you're a little bit ill like that. Yes, if he couldn't walk, maybe he wouldn't have gone, but he could walk. He was just darn hot and maybe a bit in a bad mood. But you watch that number and there's, honestly, it makes me emotional. Like there's something happening to him. Yeah. And that's why, that's why people are so obsessed with that number. It's not just the song. Yeah. It's not just the movie. Even people who don't know he had a fever watch that number and they're like, something transcendent is happening in that scene. I was really interested in the kind of frenzy of the film because, of course, it's so delightful and seductive and ticklish. Yet, I had this feeling that 
there was a narrative in the film. If I dance fast enough, you won't see how vulnerable I am. Absolutely. And Gene Kelly's imposter syndrome, of course, the film is about a Gene Kelly figure mm-hmm. who comes from nowhere, mm-hmm. is a lowly stuntman, and then gradually becomes the preeminent star. But that was Gene Kelly's journey from right. that Irish immigrant family. He couldn't bear to look at himself on screen. He said, they're not going to want to look at my big, ugly Irish yeah. mug. Yeah. And I found that very moving, the yeah. idea. You look at Donald O'Connor doing Make Him Laugh. It's almost like a psychotic episode. It's so manic. Yes. But they're giving so much. But sometimes I thought... What are they afraid of? Right. What would be revealed? Right. If they didn't just keep going, keep going, keep going, yeah. keep going. And it makes you think about what making movies then was like and the pressure. Yeah. And even all of that very fun press stuff that's all like, you know, you're the press version of yourself and then the version that's really going on behind closed yeah. doors and what's the next... Because I know when they were making it as well, if I remember right, it was like the movie was going to be canned and then Gene got involved and everyone was kind of trying to get the script right, trying to get the story right. And is it this? Is it that? Maybe it's about this. Is it about Vaudeville? Is it about silent talkies, talkies? But And it was like all on, under pressure of it just getting completely canned. And the movie feels like that when they're trying to come up with their movie. So there's something quite deep going on there, which Definitely. I think exactly like I say, as I get older, I go back to it and back to it because it holds these multiple layers for me. Absolutely. It's and saying something bigger about well, life. It, well, he lets go of that manic drive and allows his heart to let him attach to the Debbie Reynolds character. Yeah. I mean, it's very brief in the film, but you feel it's kind of write a passage story to actually being his higher self. Mm. But I'm interested that the six-year-old Kush wasn't pretending to be Debbie Reynolds or (laughs) Dean Hagen. She was being Donald O'Connor or Gene Kelly. I mean... I love all that, all the glitter and the dancing girls and all that. And Debbie Reynolds' story in it is brilliant. And so is Gene Hagen's. It's, I don't think it's that I think the boys are any bigger or anything like that. It's just, I guess I'm drawn to this chameleon-like shifting. And I always have been. And so in some ways, when I first got into the business, I found that confusing that I was supposed to kind of stay, I suppose, in this Debbie Reynolds box when uh, I felt like my soul is a bit more (laughs) Donald (laughs) O'Connor. And and then, oh God, how do I make these two things meet? And now I know there is a place for them, a space they can both be in together. But I've always been drawn to that. So I guess I'm never, uh, the man-woman part of it never really has come into it for me. And I've even been to see big musicals when I was a child or a teenager in the West End and found myself going, who would I be in this? You know, you're 15, who would I be in this? And you find yourself trying to block the thought that you'd quite like to be the lead guy. (laughs) And when I was younger, I would really try and block that out. Mm. Oh no, I'd quite like to be Mm. the Doris Day character or the, because you think, well, that's abnormal. Why would you think Mm. that? Why on earth would you want to be the tap dancing Mm. You know, and now I'm older and I understand myself more and I understand what the essence of that is more. It is about the fact that in those movies, men were given this space to shift. No one then would watch Donald O'Connor and go, well, what he's doing is quite camp. 
You know, it's not very manly what he's doing. I mean, the guy's running up walls and jumping off and being carried across and moving his face around and all of this amazing burlesque-type drag stuff. And it was like, no, Donald O'Connor, a boy's boy. You know what I mean? Mm. And then you had Jean, who was doing a whole other kind of masculinity, which, again, wasn't the traditional thing. But they were both seen as guy guys, even though Jean could kind of do ballet and he was this stocky, big guy. So... Yeah, I don't know. I just, I've always been drawn to that. Maybe in the same way I get drawn to Shakespeare characters that way. They just seem to have this, not always the men, but quite often the men. But don't you think frequently the great performers have this duality of masculine and feminine? And gender is now legitimately so fluid. And I have a slight tear in my eye thinking of you, you were just about to play Hamlet on the stage. You would have been playing it tonight. And that's a male role. And, you know, you will play that part because you'll be brilliant at it. And so it's plausible to me that you would be in Catford thinking, that dance they do, I want to do that one. Because why not? It reminds me a bit of another show I performed as a very small child, which was a number called We're a Couple of Swells which is originally with um, Judy Garland and Esther, I think, or is it Kelly? No, it's Esther and Judy Garland, and it's from a great movie. And they're both tramps. They'll walk up the avenue, yes, well. Mm. And she's in, like, they're both in top hats with flappy tailcoats on, and they're a couple of dirty, stinky tramps from New York who probably had money at some point. And they're kind of, you know, we're a couple of sports. And she and he are utterly equal in this number because they're both hysterically funny as these dirty, disgusting tramps who are going to walk up the avenue and shoot a horse and do all this stuff. And again, like, I prefer Judy in that guise to doing clang, clang, clang with the trolley. You know, like, I love her doing that too. But when I see that Judy, I see so many levels of, like, what I could be. But, yeah, like you said, it's so fluid now. This seems like a silly conversation because if I said this to a 25-year-old actor, they'd be like, well, what are you talking about? That's exactly. obvious. Like, how could you not know that? But people don't always understand that even in the last 10 years, which is the difference between me leaving drama school and being a professional, that things have been so boxed for a long time. Did you have to be Jean in your family, <laughs> i.e. entertain everybody? And if you failed to make them laugh or dazzle... You had failed? No. As a group of young kids, we were kind of a tribe. There were six of us. And so it was difficult to be seen. You were seen as one conglomerate company called Jumbo Children. Mm. Actually, it was more like Shout to be Heard. Yeah. I directed them in a lot of shows. I wrote a lot of shows and I would put posters up around the house and I'd invite my mum and dad to tell them when the opening night was and, like sell their own glasses of water to them for a few pence and all of that stuff. And my poor siblings just did whatever I told them to do. But as a family, we all sang as loudly, we all danced as loudly. And I think it was more trying to break away and be seen. But I think the pratfalling and the comedy and the understanding of not being afraid to look silly comes from six of us growing up together because you can't be embarrassed when you're in a family that big it's like you're embarrassed every second of the day or they're embarrassing you so the strategy to be seen 
heard, yeah. felt, recognised was through being artistic. I think so, yeah. Which you must have achieved. Yeah, I guess I, I recognised quite early on with those dance teachers and at the Lewisham Broadway and with things at school that somehow, sometimes when I did something or made something or spoke a poem or did a joke, people really responded to me, including the adults. And it just hit me. Like, the attention I was getting was a different kind of attention than the one from my parents. The one from my parents, bless them, was a lot more kind of pragmatic and practical. Has she eaten? Does she have <laughs> shoes on? Is number two still alive? You know, it's all of that. Where we left one at the beach, which we did once. But this was different. This was... I think Kush might be special. And can you do that again? And, like, how did you just do that? And then once you feel that, you want it more. Yeah, I had some great primary school teachers and some really great South London primary schools yeah. that were heavy on art and expression. All the work you're doing on the black curriculum and let's make the curriculum much more rich and diverse and creative is absolutely essential in that area, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you're looking to develop people, which is what society is supposed to be, and your bigger aim is that society is successful as a whole, it just seems so obvious to me that you have to start at the beginning. All the other offshoot problems, they're there anyway. But when you're starting with children, you know, you're starting at the very bottom of expression. I remember our music assembly so clearly. We had this great teacher called Mrs Lee, and she was a tiny little white woman with curly hair. She played every instrument known to man, and we had a projector. And two times a week we had music assembly for like an hour, whole school singing everything from reggae to like salsa to like a song from China to like I'm forever blowing bubble, like songs from our local and the whole school singing their hearts out and then you'd go back to class and I look back on it and I'm like yes expression yeah. sound togetherness yeah. this is the baseline of how do you build a human who is going to be emotionally self-sufficient and therefore has good self-esteem and therefore wants an education and is good in class and then goes out into the world and is a productive member of society. You cut all that stuff out and you pull all the art and you pull all the expression from kids especially and you have no connectivity and you have children who look down upon themselves because their culture isn't explored or shown any interest in school, especially when they're from that country. It just seems so obvious to me that, like, what did you expect was going to happen when kids get older? The kids that aren't of colour don't know any better, so, you know, they haven't learned anything, so they think of them as less than, and the kids that are think of themselves as less than. You've got a whole bunch of ignorance and no self-esteem going on. So, I don't know, is it rocket science? Like, it starts with education. It's always started with education, with the arts too, you know. And it's so much for the good of all of us. Yeah. And a healthy society. Definitely. I mean... You actually did end up on Broadway. I I I know, because I directed the play. (laughs) So actually, I mean, that was a beautiful experience. Cush did a new play called The River with Hugh Jackman. Can you ever feel fully recognised, seen? Like, were you able to do a job like that, for example, and think, "Ah," or is the toll, the critical voices, the I can do better... The let's do that take again, referencing singing in the rain. The inner critic still alive. 
it's been a process. I think when we met, even like for those first auditions, I remember, for example, coming to a recall and there was quite a famous actress before me. And I remember walking in to the hotel and I thought, just go home. That's so funny because I've already <laughs> told Hugh Jackman, just wait to see the three o'clock one, <laughs> you know, which is you. Right. I'm thinking, it's got to be Kush. I mean, I'm open to everybody, but, yeah. you know, it's a recall. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? This is obviously a joke. There's no point in you going in and you're one of those like, this sounds terrible because I know you now, so I know you're, you were never one of these directors, but there are directors that will fill you in just to fill space, even though they know your, their girlfriend's going to get it or their mate's going to get it. So I was like, oh, I'm a filler. I don't know why I'm here, which I would never think about myself now. And I'd always, I mean, you know, the whole musical thing and the whole, my whole life, it was like, when I get to Broadway, I'll be a person. It will be complete and the pilgrimage will be complete because to me, that's what it was. It was like, it's the mecca of what we do. And so if I get there, when I get there, I'll know something's going to click, like something's going to happen. And um, it did click in a way because it was an incredible experience and so positive and I felt brilliant when I was doing it. But like with most actors, then it's like, well, what now? What next? I don't want to let this fade away, so then what do I... And it was such a special experience for me because um, I got married on that stage on that show during our run so that building to get married on a stage in the theatre which was my church there something was happening yeah. and post that even you know going on to the good fight and working in New York and living in New York you're always kind of all this stuff you're saying about being seen and being heard can you ever fully then I had my kid and I think that was the first time in a long time that I might have understood my full worth. Yeah. Because Max looks at me as mummy 100%. There's not like, it's not mummy the actress, or Kush that is 30%. It's like what he knows is me as me. Mm. And when he looks at me, I know I'm the most important person in the room mm. and that everything I do is brilliant. It's not always going to stay that way. <laughs> I can see you looking at me like, you just wait, give it a couple of years. Mm. But that changed something and it actually mm. made me begin to do a lot more spiritual cleaning, mm. kind of spring cleaning mm. of myself, mm. thinking, I don't want these voices anymore. I want to be, oh my God, so sorry, I've, this is to do with it. But when I was doing Josephine at the Bush, Meryl Streep came to see it. She came to see the show and then after the show we sat back and she was like, I was so impressed, you played all these characters and so many of them are men, I love to play men. And then Philadera said to her, everyone's saying to Kush, you know, what next? Where should she go next? Where to now? What's the next thing? What do you think, Meryl? And Meryl said, you need to remember that the centre of the universe where everyone wants to be is exactly where you are right now. It just blew my mind. And that came back to me when I had Max because you can chase and chase and chase for this thing, to be seen, to be validated, to be told that you're good. But everywhere you're heading towards, you're missing the whole point, which is that it's happening right here around you. And since I understood that more and I've worked on that more, I feel like the last couple of years I've been a much more 
contented actor, but also almost like an even more driven one. It's like, I don't have so many of those voices anymore. And I think that's natural, you know, but... It's like the elder of Meryl (laughs) gave you this lovely bit of wisdom about presence. Yeah. And then the nativity of Max gave you this absolute immersion in, I have to be here now. And that's allowed you to really relish what you're doing. And parenthood seems to have kind of anchored you. And I'm not glamorising it, but I think that is what the job is, isn't it? You actually have to concentrate and be present. Yeah. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That, for me, takes us into choice two, Kush, which, I mean, there are many sonnets, but you've chosen sonnet 60. And it feels so part of what you're talking about to do with a mortality consciousness, time passing, but then how you use it. And what you just talked about to do with that rite of passage from the young Kush in southeast London to expressing herself and then ending up in New York and the cosmology around her of people, experiences, and then Sean, your lovely husband, and then a child. The backdrop of it is something in that sonnet. Yeah. This is choice two. Yeah. So let's have a listen to it. (sighs) Okay. Like as the waves move toward the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. Each changing place with that which goes before in sequent toil, all forwards do contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, wherewith being crowned, crooked eclipses gainst his glory fight. And time that gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth and delves the parallels of beauty's brow. Feeds on the rarities of nature's truth And nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. And yet to times in hope my verse shall stand, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand. How does it feel? Letting it speak you and speaking it. It feels... um 
I love that this sonnet so much. It, we're sitting in the Young Vic, so mm. it's difficult in a good way mm. for me because I was really ready to have the words. Yeah, yeah. And um, they'll, you know, it will be another time. Yeah. But it feels good to have the words. Yeah. And to put them here. Yeah. Because I just miss the theatre so much. Yeah. It's such a hard period for that, isn't it? Yeah. And the way you just said it, Kush, like you were just speaking, you know, <laughs> um, I can absolutely imagine the beauty and power of you riffing with it. <sighs> The thing with this sonnet is, I think, a lot of people know the stories of his sonnets and why he wrote them, and they can all stand alone. But this particular one has always hit me so hard and different points in my life, and always comes back to me. It's one that I have in, like, a warm-up box of stuff, of different poems and different things I, I do to warm up if I'm doing a part. And, like, every time I speak it, I see something. It's so visual. I see the sea coming in, the tide coming in. And Shakespeare's so obsessed with the sea and with, with the rise and fall of life because that's the rhythm. Just like in Caesar, that whole beautiful, you know, like, there is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. The idea that if you can get that, like a bodyboarder, like if you can get the wave at the right time, that's all that stands between you and glory... But also that it's just a wave. Life is just this wave and we're all going in the same direction. And as soon as you get there, you're going to be replaced and replaced and replaced. And I love that. And also I just always think it's a bit like singing in the rain. It's like a life in our business. All this kind of like beauty and how it, how it can be transfixed for now. But we're all going the same way. And like, why are you trying to stop it? And it is what it is. And time doesn't wait for anybody. Time is this constant. But yeah mortality I've lost people along the way now and I find there's something very comforting for me in this sonnet about when you're gone it's still going to be going and something else will be coming around again to there's something really comforting and beautiful about that and it's just good fucking language Mm. yeah I'm thinking of this American writer Saul Bellow he said death is the dark backing a mirror needs if we are to fully see ourselves. And it seems like you're saying that a mortality consciousness actually allows you to be in the present and to value life. And you're swayed by the music of the poem. It's lovely just for you, the musical side of you, to play off that rhythmic ebb and flow of it. Because to me, the poem has a kind of voodoo. It's like, oh, it's scary. <laughs> right. But you're... you're in a more spiritual place with it of acceptance it seems to me right which I really like I think I might try taking some of that I think things are different for everybody I I lost a couple people very young when I was young and they were young and I'm now so much older than they were when they passed and I think acting and playing characters in the theatre especially helped me to find a spiritual way through an understanding of something that was comforting Mm. that wasn't all dark and also you just yeah makes you realize that you're important but you're not that important Mm. yeah I think that notion of a spell 
that we spell words, but words can make a spell. Mm. And I'm sitting in this empty theatre on a hot afternoon in August, and I hear these words through you, the shamanic force of you and your skill and the South London music of it, which goes really well with the metre. I loved as well how you talked about the amount of heavy lifting you've got to do in The Good Wife, talking all that legalese, but that having a grounding in Shakespeare, and I so love the Brit school, which like, (laughs) I just want to say to anyone listening, every town should have like five Brit schools. It's the most amazing place run by brilliant people. Chris went there. She's one of their top alumni, but so many other people, Kay Tempest, who was on an earlier episode, my daughter, whoever, all that grounding enables you to stand up in a busy series that you're doing and do the language yeah. and it'd be brilliant. Yeah. I'm very passionate about the reclamation of Shakespeare for children and for young people, especially from the south of London, because I feel like we got tricked for quite a long time with this understanding of Shakespeare as elite and not for us, yeah. which the Victorians ultimately yeah. did to us. Like They kind of wrecked a lot of things, mm. actually, but this trick of the eye mm. where they decided that we weren't worthy of it and therefore we'll have certain people learn it and certain people not. They and can come through and play the porter. Right. But we need the elite right. RP accent right. for the And you, you grow up, at, you're in school, you, you, they say, we're going to study Shakespeare. You're like, oh, all you know is, you know, ruffles and this kind of chocolate box, blah, 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 stuff. And so you're like, well, this doesn't interest me. I don't know what this means. The Brit school just opened that up for me that's one of the biggest things and the things I can never out of all the things I can never thank them enough for is when you open up Shakespeare to a person when a young person makes the connection between not just Shakespeare and the understanding of what he's talking about because it's so relatable but the fact that Shakespeare is yours that he belongs to the people, that his phrases and his words and his jokes and his poetry was for all these accents and all these people and they were going out to the people when they were doing it and when you break through that barrier and you then are able to like learn it and understand it and speak it, you just start to ride. It happened to me in Manchester when I was doing As You Like mm. It. That was a real breakthrough for It broke, you, like it? the wall broke. Mm. I'd, you know, I'd been to drama school, I'd learnt the technical stuff. That's how we all heard about you, as you like it in Manchester. <laughs> I really? Wow. You know, I'd done the technical work, I'd read the books, but everyone knows you can do all of that, it's not enough. Something happens with Shakespeare where there has to be a moment where you get inside of it. And it, something, it was a great director, Greg Herzog, another fantastic director who has keys you know when I say you've got keys I said someone the other day I said I'm doing this podcast with Ian Rickson you know he's got so many keys and she was like what because I'm always saying actors are like born like these babies like chocked full of content but we've got like one door right that's good and then like as we go along and we work with great people and we learn we get given keys and you work with people who sometimes only give you half a key that's how unhelpful they are and sometimes you work with someone who gives you like a fucking bunch and you gave me like a bunch Aww. and Greg gave me a bunch. And then when, so when you leave that job, you have all these other access points and the rest of your life, you're just trying to like, yeah. so it can all come out. And um, something happened on that job where the Shakespeare and the director and me and the cast and the theatre just, and I was like, oh, 
my God. And you're right. Then suddenly you find yourself on an American TV show and you're speaking all these legalese and you've got to learn, you know, 18 pages in 24 hours. They're probably going to change the language when you go in the next day. You're under pressure. You've only got so many takes. You've got to think physically about that specific courtroom, where you need to stand. You're in six-inch heels and a bodycon dress with spanks underneath. And it's like action. And you just... Like, language is language, right? So the muscles are still there, and you just put them through your Shakespeare machine. Yeah, you really do that well, because I have no specific interest in litigation or criminal (laughs) law, but I love the way you think in pictures when you use that legalese, and I can feel there's a real craft underneath the speaking of it that makes it really resonate. I mean, for me, the thing you said about parenting is what it feels like for me directing, which I so miss, which is I'm the parent, really. Not that I'm more experienced, but my job is just to concentrate, be present and allow the child, the actor, the right circumstances and conditions to become their fullest self. And when I do that, I forget who I am and I'm just in this relationship And it's so liberating. So I feel the same sort of poignant feeling as you about missing it. (sighs) Oh, it's okay. But um, before I start getting tearful... We'll be back. We will. I was thinking about what you said about Meryl Streep. And I was thinking your third choice, Redemption Song by Bob Marley, is the voice of an absolutely totemic male elder in the tribe. And something I really love about your choices is they're like the people's choices. You haven't gone, (laughs) yeah, I really like this obscure Tarkovsky. And there's this track, it's not on the album, but it's this band, you wouldn't have heard of them. They're really generous choices. And Redemption Song, well, you should talk about it. Why? Well... When we were growing up in my house, um, you know, my dad left Nigeria very young, met my mum very young, and both of them were kind of on the run from their families, not you know in a movie-like way, just in that they both had had difficult upbringings and found each other and decided to kind of start again. And my dad decided to start again with his own spiritual beliefs, became a Rastafarian, all of us six kids had dreadlocks to start with for a long time. And in our house growing up, reggae was played every single day. But one particular person who was played without fail nonstop was Mr. Marley, or as we used to call him, Grandpa Bob. <laughs> because we had no extended family, I had no grandparents on either side. I had no aunts and uncles. And there were so many framed pictures of Bob Marley in my house, framed kitchen, bathroom, on the living room wall, that when I was very small, I think I was eight or nine when I understood he was not our grandpa. And then I was 10 or 11 when I was told he was not alive. And I was heartbroken. Because our relationship with Grandpa Bob was like, you know, most people know the greatest hits. We knew every album from the very beginning of his career right till when he passed. And so... We understood the songs and for my mum and dad and my dad especially, they were a comfort in difficult times and a joy in joyful times. And I know my dad 
felt very guided by Bob and Bob's legacy and what he wrote about, even though, God, like, he died when he was 37, I think, and I'm 34, which is crazy Mm. to me. And as a very small child, it was always one of my favourites. It wasn't my favourite because it was very simple. Mm. And I knew the words, oh, pirates, yes, they rabbi. And I would sing them when I didn't understand what they meant. Mm. And I loved loved the song. Mm. And then I went to drama school and my first year was very difficult there. Didn't feel like I fitted in. Didn't feel like I'd achieved there. Stuck out like a sore thumb. Felt like I did at least. And told my parents I was coming home and quitting many times. I was studying North London, I lived in South London. I was pack my bags many times and go back 11 o'clock at night, walk in my parents' house and be like, I can't do this. Like, they don't like what I'm doing. I'm not good enough. I'm working two jobs. I'm so tired. This is pointless. And my dad would always be like, let's put on some Bob. <laughs> and... Um, I used to find his albums really comforting. When I was at drama school, particularly mm. the Uprising album and yeah. the Survival album. Yeah. Because his songs are different for different parts of your life. What you need, what you require. And I required fight and yes. fire and comfort. And it got me through. And Redemption Song is a song that I go back to just for fun anyway, but also because... It's what I feel to be my grandfather speaking directly to me. Yeah. And now I've had a son. And even in the you know, current climate that we're in, those words are so important when you're talking about... I mean, he used some of Marcus Garvey's words to write the song, which was one whole meaning of its own, Pan-Africanism mm. and going back to Africa and reclaiming our, our land. But I listen to this song and I hear it as like a girl from South London. And I think... Yeah, that's all we have. Songs of freedom. And so when I felt in the past not good enough or trapped or that I'm banging my head against a brick wall, the idea that your grandfather will say to you, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. You know, none but ourselves can free our minds. Have no fit. You know, it's like, it's like, do this yourself. They're not going to unchain you. You unchain you. Because that's all we have are our songs. And so if we can't sing our songs, what are we going to do? And so I have so much love for the song. It's just a very, very special song for me. All pirates, yes, they rabbi, sold I to the merchant ships. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong By the hand of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Yeah. Gonna make me cry again. All I've done is cry during this I podcast. Feel, I feel so inspired hearing you say it. And 
Just to set the context, it's 1980, and it's the last track on the last album yeah. he ever records. And he stands down the whalers, and he leaves the I3s somewhere, and he just goes in on his own with his guitar. And I think what I love about what you say about it is Bob, Grandpa Bob, is saying, won't you help to sing? Yeah. However distilled he is on his own and he's refused treatment for his cancer and he sort of knows he's, what do they call it, travelling, journeying? Yeah, passing through. He makes this offer to a six-year-old in Lewisham um, to help him sing. Yeah. And he takes this sort of almost folk eulogy. He removes all the production. It's so distilled. And then that choppy last... I think it's A minor six mm, chord. Very odd, yeah. And it's gone. And it's like, it's just a profound yeah. zone to be in, isn't it? It really is. And I think you're totally right about Rastafarian's art anyway, but he was all about this bigger idea of activism beginning with what is closest to you. That change isn't just big and clumsy and clunky and sweeping and statements and press and... He was like, I know I can write things that will make people think and listen, and that's what I'm here for, and that's what I'm going to do. But every time you listen to it, you think, yeah, it's the very small things. Um, I was talking to a group of people the other day that were, you know, talking about, oh, it's so overwhelming to think what I can do, whether it's for poverty or Black Lives Matter or, you know, society or COVID. It's just there's so many things I feel tiny and hopeless because there's so many things, and so I kind of like... I'd rather just drink a red wine and maybe, like, talk to somebody about it. And I said, well, do you know where your local food bank is? And they were like, what? And I said, you know, where I live, there's a couple of children's centres where people will queue for food and toys, you know, at the weekend. It's up the road from quite a wealthy bit of South London. And they always need nappies. And it's got COVID at the moment, but, like, it would be great. I'd love to, like, do a story time there or... I guess my point I'm trying to make to you is don't feel hopeless. Like, look right on your doorstep and think about why are kids in South London queuing for food and toys when you're eating at Frank and Manka? Can you drop a tenner in a month? Can you drop a packet of nappies and look these people in the eye? Because that's activism. That's getting to know your local community and contributing to it. That's helping, but, you know, feeling overwhelmed and helpless and then kind of, like, drowning in a sea of so much. And I know it is so much, but I think a lot of people don't realise that being part of it, you know, won't you help to sing? Mm. It's where it begins. Mm. And if everybody did a small part, yeah, we'd all be singing together. We'd all be freer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so lovely to hear you articulate the activist side of Bob and how that goes with his spirituality because very simple and applicable and we don't just want him encoded as a sort of artist of a genre actually he really transcended that didn't he yeah I'm always encouraging people to go back to other albums some people don't even know those albums they know Redemption Song but they don't know the other songs in that album that album especially because he, he knew he was dying and so much of the album is about mortality. Yeah. Some beautiful songs on there. Yeah. Listen to his lyrics. Sure. Yeah, he's very powerful. And it, yeah, comforts me all the time. 
Yeah. You chose these three things with your intuitive, fast gut (laughs) feelings. And the trio of them congregate for me in this heroine's journey. It's like a three-act play. So act one is singing in the rain, which is this innocent, fantastically buoyant, transporting, playful, childlike thing with real ambition in it. Yeah, in the first stage of Cush's heroine's journey. <laughs> You're getting tearful again. Are you making me cry? <laughs> and then I'll just get, take a breath. And then act two, you go into this inner space with the Shakespeare, the contemplative space where time is passing and you have to make meaning and have to make your kind of reckoning with that scythe. And then act three, you connect to something of soul that's more spiritual, that's about legacy and about connection with the tribe and the community. It's just a beautiful sequence you've brought in. Well, you've made that sound a lot smoother than my picking was, but I guess, yeah, they are connected in that way, I suppose. I I don't know, I just... You learn something about yourself every day if you want to listen. And I've had my own reckoning to do with... I did get rid of quite a few demons, I think. I didn't even know they were following me around, but they were really in there, embedded Mm. in there. Mm. My experience has taught me that I know there's a number of six-year-olds there Mm. and they require, you know help with Mm. some stuff like I did Mm. I've had some fantastic and I hope to keep having some fantastic mentors including yourself like people that open things up for you Mm. or who are willing to take a chance on you Mm. and um we recently made this big move back to the UK from New York the year before Covid began we decided we were going to move back partly because I wanted my son to grow up with his cousins and his family, and I know I can jump around from anywhere, partly because something was dragging me back here. Mm. I couldn't quite work out what it was, but it was telling me this good fight time is over and it's time to kind of make a move back and have a base here, and who knows where you'll go, but there's just something bubbling, something going on, and um, a lot of it makes a lot more sense now. Mm. But I'm here. And I don't feel this is any pressure. But I think I have a bigger story to be part of than just being applauded by people. Me being on stage and having the privilege of letting other people's words pass through me, I love and I'll always love and I'll continue to do. But part of what I do has a bigger intention. I can't quite put my fingers on it yet, so I'm trying to just go with it and see where it goes. But I no longer can kind of... You're scrambling up a mountain of this business and so many people get off track in terms of where their soul is and don't realise that when you merge the two together, you get your most powerful work. Um, So, yeah, I feel like I'm in a really interesting place which is why it's so emotional for me to be here because hamlet was a lot of things coming together yeah Yeah. 
And I thought some things might come out. Yeah. But things fall where they fall. And so I, you make peace with that as well. What would Grandpa Bob say about that? About Hamlet? Yeah. He would say something like, everything in time. Mm. There is nothing wrong going on here. Everything is still moving. It's like, mm. it was all about time just happening as it was meant to. So, you know, with him dying so early, it was so ironic, but... Because I see someone who has a chemical emotional connection to her geographical origin returning as a key member of the tribe you know you now will have your own mentees people <laughs> look up to you i think this is a time of sacrifice and patience and refueling and thinking and contemplating mm. and then you will erupt onto the stage and do hamlet and it will be even better because you'll have had that time to really stoke the engine and get the right conditions. And it'll be the first of a whole tranche of new work that will come from all the things you've talked about so openly. Parenthood, growing through the work, being in another continent and returning. You just gave me like a prayer, didn't you? You just gave me a spell. I'm just I loved telling it. you what I can see. I loved it. What I do know for sure, as kind of like what you said, is that the Hamlet that will be will be one that never would have existed if this hadn't have happened. And that is an exciting thought. It would be just somewhere else in another universe. And the one that was to be hadn't been. So no. you can't mourn it, you no. know? So, no, it's, I'm very blessed yeah. God, I cried so much today. Jeez. <laughs> well, Chris, oh, thank you so much. Thank you for that having was me. So moving and enriching. And it's lovely to be sat with you in Southwark. <sighs> yeah, you too. What I Love was created and hosted by me, Ian Rickson. The theme music is by PJ Harvey. This episode was recorded at the Young Vic Theatre and is produced by Sarah Murray for Storyglass. And during our conversation, Kush and I discussed Singing in the Rain, directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan and produced by Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Redemption Song by Bob Marley from his album Uprising on Island Records. And Sonnet 60 by William Shakespeare. I really hoped you enjoyed this. Thank you and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.